0: This is the London Live podcast. Listen live weekdays from one to three on nine eighty CFPL.
1: Public washrooms. When you hear that, what do you think? You, you're reaching for your nose, aren't you? You are. You know. Let me say it again. Public washroom. There it goes. You're holding your nose. That's okay. That's a normal reaction. A public washroom is a lot like what store socks used to be in shoe stores. Remember that? Who invented, you know, the, the little nylon thing that you now put on over your foot? Especially if you're going to try on a shoe in a store barefoot. They always give you the thing It's disposable. They throw them out. Well, those haven't been around for a while. Anybody come on the journey back in time with me to what it used to be like? It was a shoe box that had a bunch of socks in them. When were those socks washed? Don't ask that question. Just put on a sock and then you can put on the shoe. Uh, Okay, you had to put on the store sock. Well, we do have public washrooms out there. They don't always have the best reputation. And yet now we've got a whole different problem because it's not so much about having those public washrooms at our disposal and holding our nose as we bring our five-year-olds into them. It's about the fact that we can't seem to find as many of them as we used to. And somebody who's been keeping close tabs on this, and thank you to him for doing that because this is important. I show you exhibit A again, the child the children's book Everybody Poops. Uh Professor Mervin Horgan joins us, associate professor of sociology and anthropology at the University of Guelph. Professor Horgan, thanks so much for keeping track of
2: this. Hey Mike, how are you doing?
1: Uh, great. just got a note from Jacqueline Carbone at 980CFPL. It's called a sock at. The thing that you put on the store sock. Yeah. It used to be called the socks that were lost in the dryer. They would, anybody who, who worked in the shoe store used to bring those socks in and put them in that shoe box for everybody to use to try on other shoes. Fortunately, that has changed, but we've got to now tackle this washroom issue, Professor Horgan. Can you tell us what it is that kind of piqued your interest in this? Sure.
2: So, I mean, I'm a I'm a social scientist who's really interested in uh, public spaces um, and thinking about how public spaces are really public goods. They're things that we all can use and enjoy um, and that should provide for some of our basic necessities. Um, and so over the last couple of years, I was working with a graduate student, Edith Wilson, who was very interested in, in access to washrooms for people who might have different sorts of needs in terms of you know dietary issues irritable bowel syndrome things like that but also more basic issues accessibility for uh you know people with disabilities uh, homeless people like where, where do where do people go to the washroom and, and if you're out and about in public uh you kind of generally most people depend on coffee shops on tim hortons on starbucks or whatever um and those places are not necessarily they're not they're not truly public right um, you can be bar- you can be barred from a Tim Hortons, for example, right? Um, so her kind of basic idea uh, was to kind of look at what happens when people do use private businesses as washrooms and how the sort of uh, the work of cleaning washrooms and stuff tends tend to fall to minimum wage workers in places like Tim Hortons or McDonald's or wherever, right? Um, so there's sort of a, a range of kind of knock-on effects by virtue of the fact that we don't actually have public washrooms available. So... Ultimately though it's about it's about creating um, public spaces that are truly accessible to everybody right
1: yeah and you would think cool. that washrooms would be a big part of that and am I remembering wrong that at least there were spots where you could find public washrooms or there are still some spots yeah. in parks am i I'm yes. remembering that right aren't I?
2: Yeah, there used to be a much bigger network of public washrooms uh, in North America in general, but in Canada, certainly there was a much bigger network. And then there was sort of a series of, uh, you know, like, kind of, we call them kind of moral panics, like concerns around washrooms and around what they were being used for, illicit sort of sexual activity or drug use and things like that. And eventually they sort of they would go into disrepair, which this is what happens with lots of public services, right? Things go into disrepair and then governments say, hey, look at this. This is a hellhole. Uh, we should get rid of this, right? Um, and we should let private business sort of take care of it. Um, and what we know from, through Edith's research, really, is when private business takes care of it, it has really knock-on effects on, like I said, on, on lower-paid workers and on, on people who, uh, who don't necessarily then get kind of free, free use of spaces, right? And so exactly. we kind of we recently wrote an article about it, um, and because we were kind of interested in well, after after the the Black Lives Matter protests, which were massive, right, which happened in the middle of the pandemic, when essentially every single public washroom in Canada was closed, and also all the washrooms in private businesses were still closed, um, we were sort of interested in in that where did people go because that was hundreds of thousands of people on the streets across Canada. Um, And also the sort of um, the coverage that happened of that party in May, I think it was, in um, the big park in Toronto, Trinity Bellwoods Park in downtown Toronto, that got a lot of coverage. The mayor of Toronto was there and stuff. Um, And a lot of the tickets that got issued there were for public urination and public defecation because there was literally nowhere for people to go. Um, So, you know, so we're really trying to think about public washrooms as, as an essential public service. Right. I like your sock example it's good, but uh it's very rare where you find yourself uh you know saying oh my god i need a pair of shoes right now right i'm, I'm going to be <laughs> in big trouble if i don't get a new pair of shoes right now we might feel that but you know when you gotta go you gotta go right um, you know so that's a it's a like for to our mind it's sort of part of having uh you know kind of truly democratic free and accessible public spaces which are part of a, a vibrant and fun place to live right
1: For sure. We're talking with Professor Mervyn Horgan about something that is absolutely key. I mean, if you're going to go walk downtown London and you're planning to wander around, let's even pretend there is not a pandemic, it is still a challenge. As Professor Horgan says, you're relying on some fast food restaurants or a coffee shop to go into, and then you do usually have to buy something in order to make use of the washroom, unless the line's really long and you just deke in and deke out. That's a possibility. But that's not ideal and it's not necessarily going to work, so what else do you do? Professor Horgan, before we move on, did you ever find the answers to uh, <laughs> the large Black Lives Matters protests in terms of where everybody was going? We uh,
2: No, that's not, sure, not sure, but you know, our, we were concerned. You know, uh, end up having to, to urinate or desiccate, public, right? We know that, in particular for black and indigenous people, contacts with law enforcement don't you know often don't go well, so, uh, without public washrooms, the chance of those sorts of encounters may also go up, right? So, there's sorts of unintended consequences maybe that that kind of come out of uh, of a lack of this sort of basic public infrastructure that should be should be part of a a, a decent and democratic society.
1: So. The easy fix sounds like it would be to just create washrooms. That's not always easy because you've got to get plumbing to them and those sorts of things. But we don't want to revert back to some of the issues that we were having with either drug use or illicit sexual activity or whatever it happens to be in washrooms. Is there even a solution
2: on the board right now? Well, it's probably going to cost, right? I mean, you need so they need to be. You need to have uh, uh, an adequate and accessible infrastructure that people can use. Uh, As it stands, a lot of it is attached attached to, you know, community centers, swimming pools, things like, you know, um, uh, across most of our our cities in southern Ontario, for example, would have a fairly good network of those. Um, But basically, you need it. We need I think what we need is an an infrastructure of public washrooms that are well maintained. And that means also having um, having maintenance staff, right, who are who are well paid and respected to do that work, too, right, because it's an essential public service
1: and essential and public service would sound like this is a a no-brainer but yeah yeah, the cost factor comes in who's going to clean these especially during a pandemic how do we even do this i don't anticipate we're going to be seeing any movement toward this during this pandemic do you
2: uh i don't know well the thing is, is we're going to have this issue of cleaning anyway in your fast food and cafes right your fast food restaurants and cafes so people are going to be doing that cleaning um, so we're already relying on those mushrooms as a as, as sort of, a, um, you know, a, a kind of a proxy uh, public service, if you like. Right. So that, that work is already being done, but it's being done in, in private businesses, right, which are not actually accessible to everybody.
1: Well, Professor Horgan, thank you for following this, for certainly making it an attention point for all of us because we've all been in that situation. I gotta go. I gotta, I gotta go. And if you're not in a position to find a place to go where you can trade a $5 drink or, you know, a $6 sandwich for the right to use the washroom, you're in a difficult spot. Thank you so much for the time. Please stay safe.
2: Okay. Okay, Thank you, Mike. Take care.
1: That's Professor Mervyn Horgan, Associate Professor of Sociology and Anthropology at the University of Guelph. That's what, is sociology not fun? Sociology is always fun for different angles that you can go to. And this is this is a topic of conversation that if this was 50 years ago, we couldn't even have. You, you can't talk about washrooms. Nobody does that. It's private. It, how, we don't discuss that. That's the way it would have been. But now, hey, where am I going to go? That's a question that we all have, and yet, how do you solve it? Right now, it's being solved by using private companies, but that's not ideal. But again, you create a spot that is, let's say, in the downtown of a city. What are you going to have? It's a private area. Private things are going to be done in there that don't make it suitable for public use, And that's one of the reasons why public washrooms went the way that they did. So, interesting stuff. Professor Horgan, we'll stay on that. And I don't know what the right solution is. I don't know where that right solution is. But if you've been downtown with a five-year-old and they've got to go, they got to go. There was a time in our lives when hacking meant you had a bad cough. Ugh. Hacked up a lung last night. This is a terrible cough. Oh, I don't know where I got it from. Terrible. That's all it meant. Now it takes on a whole new meaning, and we have two factor authentication trying to fight it off. We have to have more new passwords. You know, I, I still don't understand what we're supposed to do with our passwords because we have to change them all the time. They have to have a, a big letter, a little letter, a number, a character. You can't have. The same characters all in a row. You, you have to make it hard to figure out, but then you can't leave it lying around. It's not like you can write it down on a piece of paper and carry that in your pocket. You can't do that. So passwords are a big problem. And it all comes down to the fact that people are trying to hack into our stuff. Not every day, but every once in a while, a big one seems to happen. And yesterday, some big people on the big platform that is Twitter, seemed to be targeted. Joining us right now is tech journalist and one of our best friends on London Live, Carmi Levy. Carmi, how are you?
3: I am well. My account didn't get hacked, so I'm pretty happy, but I'm guessing if you're Barack Obama, Jeff Bezos, Joe Biden, uh, Kanye West or Mike Bloomberg, uh, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, you're probably uh, not a very happy camper today, considering what happened to you guys yesterday.
1: That's right. Sometimes it's it's nice to be a little fish. It's, it's really nice <laughs> to be a little fish. If you're the big fish, sometimes you have a bigger target on your back and a bigger hook is set out to catch you. So what exactly did take place here, Carmi?
3: Um, so if you were kind of watching these accounts, around late yesterday afternoon, about 4 o'clock is when it first started to really become apparent, was you notice that they started posting things like Bill Gates would say, I'm feeling generous today um you know uh send me $1000 to this bitcoin wallet and there was a link there and i will send you $2000 back and similar messages started appearing on all of these other accounts right around the same time um twitter recognized that there was a problem because they started taking down those uh posts and you know because that was a sign that these accounts had been compromised but no sooner had the company removed them than they reappeared uh they were re- being reposted constantly um there were uh, in the hundreds of people who actually bought it who believed that these were legit posts clicked on the link and actually sent money to these bitcoin wallets a uh, total of uh, into the hundreds of thousands of dollars was lost and will probably never be seen again um and then uh, later into the evening twitter uh, you know posted Jack Dorsey the CEO of course tw- uh, posted admitting that they had been compromised and the scary thing here is that the people whose accounts were compromised were doing all of the things that you had described. They were using strong passwords. They were changing their passwords regularly. They had dual-factor authentication where you also have a second lock on the front door. They had that activated because they're famous people. They would, of course, take advantage of all the security features available to them. But the hackers didn't go through those locks. They instead uh, targeted Twitter employees. In, in effect, this was a digital inside job, which makes this probably one of the most troubling and chilling breaches that we've seen in recent memory
1: whoa 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 so hang on this this was not sitting on some laptop somewhere and being one of those people that can type 7,000 characters a minute none of them are words and you can go in and, and figure out a way to get through all the firewalls and all of the protections and security this was actually using humans
3: yep this was uh as as twitter's Describes it. They called it a coordinated social engineering attack, uh, and uh, and they say that it was it was it was conducted by people who quote successfully targeted some of our employees with access to internal systems and tools. And so when they say social engineering, that usually means phishing. But you, you get an email, and I'm sure all of us have been targeted at one time or another. You get an email that looks like it comes from a legitimate source, but it isn't. And it's got either a button or a link in there saying, click this and, you know, to download your latest invoice or something. You click on it, of course, and next thing you know, you're in trouble. You've got now malware on your device and it does all sorts of nasty things. So what, what ended up happening was these attackers targeted people who worked at Swear. They probably found this information on uh, on LinkedIn, and they targeted them who they knew who were in administrative positions, people who had the keys to the kingdom, access to the administrative database, the the back end of all of these accounts that you and I hold. Um, and so they targeted them. And of course, if they clicked on those links, then their their devices would have been compromised. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, next thing you know, you've got screen grabs of the administrative tools that Twitter uses that are being circulated online. So either, uh, and there are also allegations, unconfirmed at this point, that some of those employees knew what they were doing. They, they were approached and they were being paid to do this. So, again, we're still vetting that. But the bottom line is, is someone was able to reach right into the middle of Twitter and get access to their most sensitive tools that they used to manage All of the data and all of the accounts that you and I rely on, they were able to take them over uh, regardless of what the owners, legitimate owners of those accounts did. And that is what is so frightening about this. It's almost like you wake up one morning, log into your online bank account, and someone who works for the bank cleaned it out. Uh, And uh, you have all the security on it. Doesn't matter. They bypassed it. This is the kind of thing that keeps me up at night, Mike.
1: No doubt. We are talking with Carmi Levy, tech journalist, and we're talking about an attack on Twitter yesterday and certain accounts, especially. And it ended up being one of those phishing type scams where it was trying to get you to send Bitcoin. And some people did, thinking that they were going to get double back, just like when that royal prince sends you the email. Doesn't sound <laughs> a whole lot different than that. But at the same time, Carmi, if this can happen, and it seemed to happen very easily, what do we expect to play out from this, triple-factor authentication?
3: Well, I think we're probably going to see uh, more layers and tougher layers. So, yeah, the, you know, once we go beyond two-factor authentication, they start calling it multi-factor or MFA authentication. Basically, what it means is they just keep layering them on. So you'll have to give it a password. You'll have to use your fingerprint, maybe your facial uh, recognition. You might use an authentication app. Uh, where it generates a number every 30 seconds and you have to enter that number very quickly or it'll text you an SMS-based uh, method or all of the above. And so, of course, security now, it becomes it's almost like going through the airport. It keeps the plane safe, but you've got to go through more and more layers. It becomes less and less convenient. So that is kind of what our computing future looks like, is we're going to be seeing a lot more security going forward. And I think also We're going to be hearing from Twitter about what they're doing to tighten up their internal controls so that this kind of thing doesn't happen again. This is not so much a technology problem with Twitter. It's a culture problem with Twitter. Their people aren't properly trained, don't have the right security tools, uh, and obviously once uh, an issue is uncovered, the company is kind of slow to respond to it. So uh, Twitter's got some explaining to do, uh, and I would expect we're going to hear more details in the days to come. Otherwise, I worry in a year where there's pandemic, economic collapse, U.S. election, uh, all these things that are happening, here's a platform that is being used for all sorts of things, including, you know, statecraft by the President of the United States. Uh, If we can't trust what's going on on Twitter, that's a very worrisome development. This company needs to clamp down on this, and hard and fast.
1: Well, we haven't seen a response from them yet, right? Are they they in the midst of likely a lot of meetings on Zoom, trying to figure out what the right (laughs) wording is going to be?
3: Yeah, they, they've posted a few things basically sort of describing what they think happens and what they're doing next, apologizing. Jack Dorsey, the CEO and founder, you know, he said they feel terrible for what happened and they're, they're uh, you know, it's an all-hands-on-deck situation. They're doing everything they can to ensure it doesn't happen again. and They want to regain our trust. The usual, like I'm sure their PR people have been working overtime coming up with the right words. We're still not seeing a whole lot of detail about what that means. In other words, Twitter, how are you going to change to ensure that this never happens again? And that's the worrisome thing here. This is a new kind of attack uh, on this scale and at this level of sophistication. My concern is, is isn't necessarily this attack. It's that it's proven that this approach works and that other hackers are now going to build on that knowledge going forward. So I would expect we're going to see similar uh, types of attacks, not necessarily against Twitter or maybe against Twitter, but also against other social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and others. Um, this is kind of the beginning of a new escalation in this never-ending cyber war.
1: Okay, well, our names are not Jeff Bezos and Barack Obama, and we're not necessarily big fish in the sea. Is there anything we need to be doing to protect ourselves?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, that's the thing is just because we're not famous doesn't mean that we're not at risk. Uh, you know, my data, even though I'm just a, a very small fish in a very big sea, my data is worth something as is yours, as is the data of all of our listeners. So uh, keep in mind that if we are compromised, it's just as disruptive to us as it would be to Bill Gates or Elon Musk. So, you know, let's continue to practice smart password protocol. So like, as you described, hard to guess passwords. I know they're not convenient, but, you know, do it anyway change them on a regular basis every month, two or three months, and never use the same password on more than one system. That way, if one service is compromised, they're not just going to skip off to your Gmail account and then go into there. So I know it's not convenient. You can use uh, password management apps like LastPass or Dashlane to kind of manage it in one place. Those make life a lot easier. Um, and I know a lot of people myself, we swear by them because it, it just makes it you can balance that security but plus convenience. Um, and then also, just you know, go through all of your accounts. Make sure that you're actually using them. Because if you're not, get rid of them. It, don't just delete the app. Actually, go into the account and close the account out. Then get rid of the app. Because if your data is just kind of out there and it isn't being used, it's at risk of being compromised in a future breach. But if you get rid of it, you're gone. This is what happens in, with the Yahoo breach. There were a lot of accounts that were dormant. But there was a lot of secret private stuff posted in there. And once that got out there, that caused real problems for people. So clean up your act as well. That can go a long way toward reducing your risk.
1: Great points. Great advice, as always. Carmi, thank you so much for the time today.
3: Great being here, Mike. Thank you.
1: We'll talk soon. Okay. That's tech journalist Carmi Levy. And as annoying as it is, yeah, look into stuff like that. Carmi mentioned LastPass. Take a look at it. What it does is it allows you to line up, okay, I have a YouTube password, I have a Netflix password, I have an Amazon Prime password, I've got an email password times about nine. Uh This is something that will help you look after. But even then, I mean, I'm somebody who looks and says, yeah, but then, then they're all in one place. So then you develop other systems to try and use it, but changing those passwords, it is legit. And anybody who's had anything compromised, a couple of weeks ago, you know, my wife had these messages being texted from her phone. We still don't know how or why. I have no idea. Maybe it was someone just guessing her number. They didn't seem to have hacked into her phone. Nothing crazy has happened since. We talked to everybody, but these sorts of things keep popping up on a more regular basis to all of us. You don't have to be Barack Obama. You don't have to be Jeff Bezos, but you do have to be aware and safe, right? Rough, but true. Things are changing as far as the Terry Fox run goes this year. We heard from Peter Ferguson this morning with Devin Peacock on the morning show, but things have had to change for a number of events. And this is another one on the list. So what was going to be the usual run in September on July, uh, or actually we, we will see, we will see that coming up on we will see that coming up uh, in September, but we also have the opportunity to kind of look back in time on things as far as the Terry Fox run goes. And it is tomorrow that marks the anniversary, and it's already, imagine this, it is already the 40th anniversary of Terry Fox being in London tomorrow. So when we look at, at how things are happening this year, yeah, probably virtually, we're, we're still kind of waiting on final details. But in the meantime, we get to mark a pretty unique anniversary in this area, as many municipalities have been marking the anniversary of Terry Fox coming through their area. Joining us right now is London Mayor Ed Holder. Mayor Holder, thanks for taking some time. I, I know you're still in meetings all day. Things are going okay?
0: Yeah, things are great. Thanks. Uh- but i got to tell you, uh, when you want to interrupt any time to talk about Terry Fox, uh, I'm all in.
1: All right. Well, it is. It's amazing that uh, that we've got you here because you seem to have so many different stories. Whether it is Newfoundland and being there in the place where his marathon of hope began, or certainly connections to London, Mayor Holder, where where do you even want to begin? When someone asks you, can you please tell me a Terry Fox story? What one do you start with?
0: Uh, well, you know, I. So I'm looking at a in my office. I look at a poster signed by Betty. Fox, who just said thanks for uh special thanks for for the caring involvement that I've been involved with uh with them. Uh I know all the family, uh uh Darryl when he received the uh Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal, uh, asked me specifically to uh to invite him up when uh, when actually Terry uh to Ottawa when uh when Terry was being considered for the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame, uh, his family really kinda resisted it. Simply because they're they're very humble people, and so the executive director at the time here in London called me up and said, "Due to your connection with the family, would I would I reach out to Daryl and talk to the family?" And, and and so we had a great talk about that. Uh, I've got a pair of shoes, Adidas specials, from uh... fifteen years ago, that uh, twenty years ago that uh, that uh, Daryl sent me, just again as an acknowledgement with the family. So there's you know we've had lots of engagement, but maybe the best story, and I'll just uh, and then I'll get to anything else you want to cover, but was when uh, I was asked to, uh, on behalf of um, uh, of the federal government, to lay a plaque to acknowledge Terry as a person of national historic significance and to do this in uh, St. John's, Newfoundland. It then followed uh, from there. Uh, a letter from a woman, a resident Donna Ball, who actually housed Terry in Saint John's, Newfoundland, and she said, "How come there's nothing like there is a statute to honor Terry as there is in Ottawa, as there is in uh, Thunder Bay, where he was forced to stop his run, and BC, where he was raised? How come uh, not where he started it?" So I took it to the minister at the time, uh, Jim Prentice, uh, God rest his soul, and uh, and Jim said, "A great idea. Do you want to run with it?" Uh, forgive the pun. The very next day, I had uh, the uh, Minister's Chief of Staff, I had uh, the person responsible for Parks Canada in my office in Ottawa, and we laid out the the rough works and the plan for what ultimately became a parquet in the St. John's Port Authority, and I was there. Betty had passed away at this point, but Raleigh, her husband, was there, and the family to unveil this uh, amazing statue to honour uh, one of Canada's greats.
1: We are talking with London Mayor Ed Holder. Tomorrow marks the 40th. Mayor Holder, the 40th anniversary of Terry Fox arriving in London, Ontario. And we're seeing so many of those 40th anniversaries throughout municipalities across this province. And And you think back to how how unknown Terry felt when he began that run and what it has turned into 40 years later. It's hard to put into words, isn't it?
0: Well, it is. Uh, I will tell you, Londoner Ron Calhoun did uh, so much in terms of uh, uh, the scheduling for Terry across the country, and uh, and that run really took momentum. So, by the way, and 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 perhaps you've mentioned this, uh, but I do you know when you imagine that uh, he had reached London after he'd run uh, two thousand three hundred fifty-seven miles. And so his run lasted, uh, as we know, 143 days. You know what that is? That's the equivalent of uh, uh, of running a full marathon a day uh, for uh, 143 days. It is the greatest athletic endeavor uh, of all time, like, in the world. No one's ever – and he did it on one leg. And uh, the sheer determination of of of, uh, of Terry. Uh, how how can we who saw him, uh, whether it be Toronto, whether it be London, wherever we saw him, uh, not be touched by the greatness of uh, the grit, the determination, uh, and the passion that he showed?
1: The Terry Fox run comes up in September. It may be done a little differently, as many events are this time around in 2020, but tomorrow marks the 40th anniversary of Terry Fox arriving in London, July 17th of 1980. Mayor Holder, you did develop and you have developed such a special relationship with members of Terry's family. How did that relationship come about?
0: Well it uh it, it truly started when I met uh when I met uh Fred Fox, so this is uh Terry's brother, when I laid the um uh when I laid the plaque uh in Saint John's Newfoundland. He was there on behalf of the family. And then when we got the idea to uh, uh to put the uh memorial in Saint John's, uh then we met the whole family more than once and uh, the great story of John Crosby who was then lieutenant governor uh, of uh, uh, of Newfoundland and Labrador and he was hosting the event when we were unveiling and uh, and he said to me uh he said ed do you think uh, you'd like to come over to government house perhaps have a dram and we'll celebrate and i said sure and he said well do you want to uh, bring someone and i said well i'm actually uh, escorting the fox family so betty and raleigh and uh, the kids Sorry, Raleigh and the kids, excuse me then. And he said, oh, the Fox family. Well, if they come, you don't need to come. And uh, <laughs> it was just one of those uh, great stories uh, amongst so many of the family. And then, as I say, when uh, the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame uh, inducted Terry into the, uh, in, into the hall, when, uh, and that was another connectivity, when the Fox family was really looking for research support to be able to put a, uh, a museum and a, um, and a respite place in um uh in british columbia when uh, when the uh one of the museums in ottawa had a big feature including uh, terry's uh uh terry's uh, volkswagen uh extended uh van uh that was found in a field near london i don't know if you knew that but uh no. and then got refurbished and uh it's part of the display now so this wait
1: ch- a minute it wasn't purchased somewhere they didn't own this this was found in a field
0: no it was found in the field uh, it was left in a field somewhere somehow uh, i i don't have the story of how it came to near london but after the run was done like after he was forced to stop oh, okay. his run somebody acquired the uh somebody acquired it and just left it in the field to rust and rot and so that's been refurbished now so there's just there's just so many stories that uh, that that tie into uh, that that tie into Terry. And I don't know if you know Bill Prostansky out of Ottawa. He's uh, he's uh, someone who is the chair of the Terry Fox Foundation and has has personally raised almost a million dollars to support uh, the. Uh, uh, what the whole purpose of this is to find a cure for cancer and that's they claim that Ron Calhoun that came up with the uh with the motto the marathon of hope and you know so there's a lot of london tie to uh to this amazing family
1: and you think about the family being from bc how unlikely that is but you've just listed off so many
0: well he's actually he was actually born in winnipeg raised in uh raised in bc and then uh when he was uh when he was just uh young in his early twenties, uh, well, he was 23 when he died. Uh, but, uh, decided that, uh, he really, to him, uh, this was important, uh, that he do this. And, um, you know, I mean, again, there's uh, there there there's so many phenomenal stories. By the way, you know, there's this quintessential picture of Terry kind of running uh, down a road, but with trees in the background, painted by Londoner Cliff Kearns. And it's the one that's in hospitals right across the country, and uh, copies that often people can get in uh, some of the art galleries and the like. And uh, I'm honored to have one on my wall, but... Uh... You know, I mean, a lot of touch points with, uh, with Terry Fox and, and, and our city, and uh, we treasure all of them.
1: Incredible. Well, you think of how modest it was when it began, and then what has happened since. I don't know what the latest numbers are, but Mayor Holder, at one point, it was quoted as having raised over $750 million. And I'm Except- sure we're, we're more than that now.
0: Well, uh we're we're getting upwards of a billion dollars, you know. He himself uh, uh raised 1.7 million dollars for cancer research and then in his honor and in uh, and in his name that has gone to close to a billion dollars and that's that that's you'll recall when when uh where they were looking to find the greatest Canadian and uh I had a couple of them uh, in my top list and Terry Fox was uh in my top two uh and and just because uh, you, you know he you know what he did he 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 really brought uh the canadian community together like like never ever he galvanized uh, this country and uh he, you know you didn't often see him with smiles you just saw him often with grit and determination um but I, it, 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 one other quick story. So here we are in Ottawa at the Rideau Club, and I've been asked to emcee an event with senators and uh, MPs and the like in the Fox family, all of them were there. Uh, and it was a fundraiser uh, or an awareness campaign more than that for their uh, the idea of this museum in um, in British Columbia. And and uh, so one of Terry's artificial legs was on a, on a stand behind me so here I am talking, and I kept looking back to my right because his leg, his leg was right there. Now he had more than one, of course, for his uh, for his purposes. But it was just such a, an eerie feeling. And uh, and I've got some great pictures of the Fox family that uh, on that particular day. So lots of very special memories about a very special person
1: mayor holder thank you so much for sharing all of this with us the london connections and everything beyond he is such an important figure in this country's history and as you say such a galvanizing figure in this country's history uh thanks so much for taking some time out of what is i know a busy day we really appreciate it please stay safe
0: thanks so much uh, appreciate this mike
1: take care that's london mayor ed holder that's how many london connections there are i mean uh, how many of us could count all of those at the beginning remarkable the ties and tomorrow is the 40th anniversary of terry fox arriving in london july 17th 1980 you've been
0: listening to the london live podcast catch the show live on weekdays from one to three